And thank you all again for worshiping with us. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Genesis 2 this morning. Not very hard to find. Doesn't take long to get there either. Um, we're going to take a very powerful look uh, at our Bibles today. Um, and uh, eventually we're going to see from cover to cover um, a very powerful um, theme. Uh, one of the ma- main things, maybe the major theme in the Bible. Um, this will be affirming to some. It might be eye-opening to others, but I really think this is one of those awesome things about God's Word that everybody should be aware of and pay attention to. Um, never talked about it, never preached, never did a message on it before, and it's something I've really always been fascinated by and been, been intrigued by. Uh, only recently really uh, felt led and, and uh, got into God's Word to, to present this, I believe, the way it needs to be, or at least close as it can be. Uh, so we're going to start out in Genesis 2. Uh, which will be our main focus later on in, in our time. But if you want to open up again, Genesis 2, I want to look at verse number 8, um, as this is sort of the, the beginning of the narrative that most of us are very familiar with, uh, where uh, the Garden of Eden is literally planted by God. God created the world perfectly complete um, in that uh, initial creation week. And this is a more detailed look. So this isn't in contrast to Genesis 1, but it's complementary too. So it's more of a zoomed in fo- focus, if you will. Uh, Genesis 1 uh, through 2, 7 is more of a, from a top down, this is kind of the basic, you know, point A to B to C, how things were created, the, the, the process that God took and the steps that he took in, in a very simple laid out way. Um, again, there's scientific, you, there's, there's books written uh, on the science behind, you know, those verses that could stack up from here to the moon. Uh, But God tells us how he did it in in a sovereign, powerful way that only an almighty God could do. Uh, But Genesis 2 is a closer look at those last couple of days as God makes a specific place for his choice creation, uh, man and woman. So Genesis 2 verse 8, we'll read the rest of this in a little bit, but just verse 8 for now. The Lord God planted a garden to the east or eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. So I would like for you, if you highlight your Bibles, underline, or just make a note, that phrase east or to the east or eastward, that is something that always fascinated me as a kid, as a Bible student, as someone who went to school and you know, asked people that should know these kind of uh, answers, questions. Uh, this was one of the verses that I always was drawn to, always was fascinated by, um, because at this point, there's no point of reference in the story. East of what? It, it literally just started. Earth just became an inhabitable place for humanity after God made everything very good for uh, Adam and Eve. The first bit of info we get is that God made a home. He literally planted a garden, a paradise for people. So if there is a reference point, it's God. Because the only point of reference at this point in the story is that God in heaven is creating all things. And as it says to the East and Eden, if there is a reference point, God is the reference point uh, man was placed in this garden. God has been the center of it all. And, and that's why I think this is a bit of info is a little bit foreshadowing. Man was placed in a garden, which was to the east of the Lord. Now, I know everybody probably thinks or has a response to that. What does that mean? What is it, why is it even important? But what does that mean? This, this is one of the few dozen reasons why I love the Bible. 
and believe with all my heart that the Bible is inspired, it's complete, it is the revelation of God. Verses like this uh, are not mysterious cliffhangers meant to make us go and look into you know, all sorts of sources to figure out what is behind it, but they're just the beginning of a thread that offers us so much insight for our worlds. It's for reasons like this and many more that I'm continually fascinated with the story the Bible tells. And, and yes, the Bible does tell a story. Now, the Bible is a history, is history, but it's more than just a history book with chapters and sections that you turn to for certain errors and certain bits of information. It's a story, a cohesive story from front to beginning. It's a biography of the human race and of this planet as told by God from his perspective. The Bible is both his story and our story. It's where we intertwine. It's where we intersect, isn't it? The Bible is the redemption story, to be more specifically. It's important to make this distinction so that we understand God's intentions with the book, the whole book, and the individual books that it contains. And now you might ask, why does that matter? It matters because we miss major things if we just treat the Bible like a textbook or a dictionary or an encyclopedia. The Bible deserves better than to be treated like a book that you can open to at any point at random and just get information or definitions out of. It's better than that. It may have those things in it, but it's better than that. And, and the reason why there are thousands of denominations and hundreds of theological points of view is because so many people claim to believe in the same God, yet we don't read the Bible as he's given it to us and don't take the full story as it was inspired to be. Most of us, the Bible is just a book that anybody can open up to any page in any one verse and get what they want out of it. But that undermines and really damages the integrity of the cohesive story that God inspired and preserved for us. Reading it that way or consuming it that way jeopardizes the narrative threads that are woven from cover to cover. So again, you can open the Bible and read it at any point, any page, but I want us to understand there's a story being told that begins in Genesis and goes all the way through to Revelation. God inspired it that way for a purpose and with a very specific uh, theme behind it. The larger story, again, now if you read the Bible, it's not all narrative. There's poems, there's oracles, there's sermons, there's prophecies, right? But even within those books, there are different, there, there are narrative threads that contribute to the larger story. The larger story, of course, centered around the world, which God made that then broke not because he wanted it to break, but because mankind broke it and rebelled. God made the world perfect. We broke it. And then God was prompted to remake it through a very planned out and a very meticulously implemented redemption plan. That's why we call the Bible the story of redemption. We get two chapters of paradise and then it unravels. And then we get hundreds of pages, thousands of pages and thousands of years of God's detailed efforts to redeem it all. And he absolutely does. The Bible is the story of this world's creation, its fall, and its recreation. Better broken down, we read about God's creation, humanity's fall, and Christ's recreation. But here in Genesis 2, this phrase, to the east, comes on the heels of having learned that we were made in God's image. Remember that from Genesis 1, verse 27, a man and woman made in God's image. Now, we are not God's. But we were made by God to be made like God, lower than him, of course, but elevated above all other life forms on earth. Now, we talked about this last week, but I want to get more deeper into it and talk about it more generally today. That we talked about what does it mean that we are made in God's image? It's not about how we look as much as it is about our characteristics, our DNA, 
the attributes that we possess as people, what makes us distinct as people, we are made in the image of God. And, and this, I think, is maybe the best way to break it down. God's the image of God speaks of God's gift to an investment in humanity of a particular value and morality. That God's image, that we are made in God's image is his gift to us and his investment in us. So he gave us something, but he also shared with us something. God's gift and investment in us with a particular value that we're worth something. We're valuable to God. And that life has a value to it. And there's also a standard, a code, a morality that we get straight from God. And that God has positioned us on this earth for his glory and his honor. That's what it means that we are made in the image of God. This concept has been core to Christian thought and philosophy since the beginning of the church, but it predates Christianity. It's core to Judaism and Jewish thought, of course, the Old Testament being their book. This concept explains why Judeo-Christian truth and thought exclusively values life when compared to other theologies and other philosophies, that Christians and Jews have a particular value of life that we understand how sacred it is because we believe it's from God, not accidental, not coincidental, but it's purposed, specifically created and formed by God himself. It also explains why Judeo-Christian truth and thought alone has a moral code that champions purity and commitment. The story of the Bible is really overshadowed by this backdrop. You could almost title the Bible in the image of God, the story of reflection, rebellion, and restoration. We were made to reflect his image, but we rebelled. And God made it his life goal, his eternal goal to restore us to his image. The story about how we were made, we were disgraced, and how God determined to bring us back. The concept is so core to Christian thought. In early Christian thought, this phrase became one of the most talked about phrases. And when it came to the mission of Christianity, to bring humanity back into the image of God, to, un to reveal to the world that you are made in God's image. And that means you're valuable. And that means you're worth something. And that means God has an investment in you and a plan for you. You're not, you're not someone who has, does not have a contribution for the universe, but rather God, the Lord creator of the universe, also made you and has a plan for you and a purpose for you. That is God's goal from the beginning, and that is the church's mission to spread this reality that we are made in the image of God. Now, in the early days, of course, the church wrote and spoke in Latin. Latin, the Latin phrase, Imago Dei, is something you've probably seen before. It's the title of this series just because it looks cool, not because it really anything significant about the Latin of it. Uh, but image of God, that means image of God, Dei is the Latin word for God. Uh, this phrase and, it, and, and the use of it became the cornerstone of the church's mission for thousands of years. Uh, and it inspired one of the most incredible works of art of all time. So if you go on Google and you type in Imago Dei, you're probably going to get an image like this. This, of course, is the ceiling, literally the walls and the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel in Rome. You've probably heard of that before. The Sistine Chapel in Rome, where this amazing fresco painting that covers the walls, the sides, and the ceiling uh, of, of that ancient cathedral. Now, most of you have heard of and know that the, uh, the, the artist behind this amazing masterpiece is Michelangelo. Um, he's a famous Renaissance artist. He's uh, considered one of the most talented, maybe the most talented craftsman of his day. He was 
particularly known for his sculpting ability, uh, but he also was a pretty good painter. He was commissioned by Pope Julius in, 16, in, in 1505 to help with the refurbishment of the Sistine Chapel. But Michelangelo, uh, after attempts to get a hold of him again and again and again, he would not answer his phone, would not check his mailbox, he would not respond. Pope Julius worked for three years to get him on this project. And Michelangelo was a little bit of a prima donna. He was very talented. He knew, he knew how much he was worth, and he just didn't want to do this. He said it would be impossible to take much years off of his life. He just did not want to take time to do this project. But the Pope would not settle for any other artist. Michelangelo said, hey, you should call my buddy Raphael. You should, you should find somebody else to do it. And, and the Pope said, no, you are the guy that I want to decorate and, and, and make um, new this ancient church. So after years and years of trying to get his attention, Michelangelo finally committed the project in the spring of 1508. And for the next four and a half years, he would finish the project on All Hallows' Eve or Halloween in 1512. Four and a half years later, he would have spent much of those years on his back on scaffolding built by himself, uh, painting sideways and upside down and all the different postures you could imagine. He would spend four and a half years on scaffolding, suffering intense backaches um, and much more in the process to finish this project. He was asked to basically take the whole Bible and break it up into its major scenes. And there's pictures of all the different saints and all the different, you know, major figures from front to back that we know about in the Bible. But Michelangelo had a little bit of creative liberty, as you would imagine someone of his clout would carry. He said, you know what, I'm going to do my own thing on the ceiling. I'll do what you want me to do on the, on the sides. I'll paint pictures of all the different prophets and apostles and all the people. I'll do a, a big wide shot of heaven and all that stuff. But you let me do what I want to on the ceiling. That's mine. And the Pope said, of course, you do what you want to do. Of course, he expected Michelangelo to do nothing but something spectacular. So Michelangelo wanted um, on the ceiling the focal point to be and the focus to be the narrative threads of man's drift from God. He wanted the ceiling to capture how much we have drifted from God. You think, why would he want that to, 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 that, to capture that? Those are the darkest moments of humanity. And if you look at the ceiling, there are some pretty dark episodes that have been captured from the history of creation, from the history of the Bible, from the stories that we all know. But Michelangelo thought, as we look up to the heavens, we are reminded why we're here. Because we are seeking, we are searching, we are turning to God. Because in our own nature, we have walked away from God. Now, he was no theologian, but he had a pretty good idea about what the whole purpose of this uh, mission was all about. And probably the image that you think of the most when you think about Michelangelo, the Sistine Chapel, and the fresco on the ceiling, the image that you think of the most that comes to your mind is this classic image of this personified version of God reaching out to Adam. And you've seen this picture before, haven't you? And I didn't do the whole image there. I wanted to focus to be on these hands, one being the hand of God, one being the hand of Adam. But notice, they aren't touching. And Michelangelo made it that way for a very specific reason. Many believe the message he was trying to convey was that there is this unattainability of the divine, that mankind has always just been a little bit east, a little bit away from truly walking with God, truly being where they were always meant to be. Adam and God, there's this gap in between. This gap is not originally intended to be a detriment, but after the fall, it would only worsen and widen. This is where I want to take you on a bit of a journey through the scriptures, particularly the book of Genesis, to show you this narrative thread 
that begins in Genesis, but it spreads throughout the rest of the Bible. But I want to show you. So if you have your Bibles, again, make sure that we'll turn back to Genesis 2 in a minute. But I want to take you through a little bit of a journey and look at a couple of verses uh, here, Genesis, beginning in Genesis 3. And I want you to notice a thing that I think you probably can already suspect what it's going to be. But look at Genesis 3, verse 24. And if you have a highlighter along with you, um, see, if you can, see if you can notice the theme, the thread that we began to talk about. Genesis 3.24 says that God drove the man out. This is after the fall. He placed cherubim or angels at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So they were cast out to the east of Eden. Now again, Genesis 4, verse number 16, the story goes on. We know Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel. Cain kills Abel. Cain is banished, ashamed of what he did, but he's going to go and wander the land. Genesis 4, 16 says, Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So a little more east than we were already. Now, a few more pages, Genesis 10. And as you know, the story goes that there's the story of Noah, there's the flood, then there's the repopulation of the earth. Things are much better. And it says there in Genesis 10, verse 30, the dwelling place for most of the people was from Mesha as you go toward Safar, the mountain of the east. So they get a little more east. And then Genesis 11 opens up that famous story, the Tower of Babel, where all of creation is gathered together in rebellion against God. And it came to pass, verse 2, as they journeyed from the east, or literally it's toward the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. So again, they go a little bit farther east. Now, what happens between 11 and 12 is that God picks Abraham to start to bring redemption and start to restore this fallen creation because it's just spiraling out of control. He confuses their languages. They're all spread around to different nations. So what does God do? He picks one man to start his own nation. God brings him back west. But Abraham was no different than the rest of them, as you would expect. God brings him back west and they build a small village called Bethel, which literally means the house of God. Now, it wasn't a temple, it wasn't a church, it wasn't something like we would think of. It was just literally a place, on the, a place on the earth where there was an altar where they were meant to seek the Lord. But the story goes that even after they built Bethel and they went back west, Genesis 12 verse 8 says that Abraham moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel. So they went east of Eden, they went back west a little bit, and now Bethel is the reference point, and now they're going back east. Now, we could go on and on, but we'll stop at chapter 13, verse 11. Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east. And, of course, we know what happens to Lot. Now, there are more uh, eastern references as this drift does not stop. I encourage you, read your Bibles. There are so many threads like this that you'll pick up on that will fascinate you and bring you into a, an amazing uh, search of God's Word. But this drift, drift, excuse me, this drift eastward is, of course, deeper than a literal trek in one cardinal direction. There's no holiness in directions, east or west, nothing holy about either one. But this drift eastward is more than a literal walk in one direction. It's for whatever reason, this is the way God characterizes their falling away, how humanity began to turn away. 
Later in Genesis and even in Exodus, you'll hear about the eastern winds that bring blight upon the land. You'll hear about the armies of the east that are always a threat. This was just God's way of depicting a literal way of something that, a literal something that took place spiritually and personally within everyone, which calls this space between. If you drop in at any place in the narrative, particularly the Old Testament, you can witness this gap, this disconnect as humanity walks away from God, from the face of God. They drift away from the image of God. Every few generations, there would be people that would try to figure out what their problems were. There would be leaders that would try to, to pinpoint where we got off, where we went wrong, how can we solve them? And maybe through politics or through prosperity. But again and again, none of those things proved to be real solutions. And God raised up prophets and preachers who proclaimed the issue is that we've lost touch with God. We're detached from God. God, who he is and who he wants us to be. Our greatest issue is there is a disconnect with our creator. We have fallen from his image. We are in the bondage of Adam's image, of Adam's fall. And this remains our struggle, doesn't it? This is why this is such a relevant topic for us to discuss. This is why we are seeking God's face. And it's why you read about this in the Old Testament. They're literally trying to get back in touch with God's image, who we are destined to be, who he desires us to be, which we believe isn't just for the sake of being right, but so that we might live a fulfilled and content life in light of who God is, in light of who he's made us to be in his image. We asked the question last week, God made us for his glory. Do we even know what that means? Do we know who we are? Do we appreciate God's design as a pathway to our true delight? We came to the conclusion that God, our creator, our designer, desires that we might be restored to this place. We talked about how God became one of us to restore us to him. We talked about the image of God, the image of Adam, and how Christ, of course, came like Adam as a man, but God in flesh to restore us. To God. And we concluded that Jesus Christ is the only way back to God's image. There's this tremendous moment of symbolism in the New Testament when Jesus is born. Maybe you've never paid attention to this, but now that we've picked up on some themes, I bet you know where this is going. There's this tremendous moment in the New Testament when Jesus is just a, an infant or just a toddler. He gets some visitors, doesn't he? And where do they come from? Now, and after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east. Humanity had drifted so far away from God, but Jesus was bringing them back. Do you see that? All the Old Testament is a story. We continue to go east. We continue to go away from God farther and farther and farther. And the cornerstone of the New Testament is that Jesus is God in flesh. He has come. And what happens when he is born? Kings from the east say, we don't know what we're doing, but we've heard somebody has come that knows how to get us back. Isn't that incredible? Jesus at his birth was literally bringing people back to God, bringing people back from this eastward drift, a literal picture of what God was gonna do spiritually. This imagery that is built up around Messiah in the Bible that he would not just stop the drift, but reverse it. The imagery is always bombastic and extreme. If you read the Old Testament, there are these amazing metaphors and analogies of what it's like when God intervenes in your life. Now, I believe some of them portray literal things that might happen in the future on this earth, but all of them portray spiritual things that can happen right now in your heart. Does that make sense? 
That yeah, God has a plan to restore this earth, but right now he's trying to restore you so that you can enjoy what he's going to restore on earth. So there are spiritual meanings and literal meanings of these prophecies, but I want to show you one that I think you've heard of before. Zechariah 14, on that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, a very wide valley. You know why it's wide? So that all the people can get through it. Do you see that? Why is it on the east? Because that's where everybody's went. And Jesus lands his feet on the mountain and says, this mountain is not in your way anymore. Now that might literally happen one day, but the spiritual side of that is that you can get back to God through Christ. No matter how far you've went east, he can bring you back. Matthew 24 says, literally in the future, for as the lightning comes from the east, shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And likewise, in your life right now, it can be a lightning strike. It can be a moment of intervention where God says to you, you don't have to drift any farther away. You can come back. That is a reference again of what I believe God's going to do one day on this earth. But for you to experience that restoration, he has to do that in your heart now. Spiritually speaking, Colossians 3 says that the old has been put off and we have put on a new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. So this is what Jesus can do for you. And the good news is you're in church. So you're worshiping Jesus or you've heard about Jesus. So you have in your hands the way back. The sobering news is that we know the way back and many of us still aren't walking in it. But I'll take the blame on this one. As churches, we don't often talk about this stuff enough. It's complicated. But for the most part, it's not that we aren't able to talk about it. It's not that the Bible doesn't talk about it. It's that we shy away from it because God's design for you, just being honest with you, God's design for you is in stark contrast with what you've settled for in this world. God's design for you as a man, as a woman, as a husband, as a wife, as a parent, as any, any, any label and role that you take, God's design for you most likely is in stark contrast with what you bought into in this world. And for that reason, his design may seem like an imposition on us at times. But let me make it very clear. It is salvation. It is life. Last week, we got a taste of what's in store for us in this series, but it was anchored in the word of God that tells us that God created both male and female in his image, championing this truth that both men and women, uniquely, distinctly, and complementary, bear and reflect the image of God. Today, we're going to look at this creation narrative for a few minutes before we close to see how God originally intended it to be and how, in many ways, mankind did the exact opposite. Today is going to be, a little, the last few minutes will be a little more focused on men than women by virtue of the focus being on Adam, but I think there's something here for everybody. So here's a few things I want us to pay attention to as we get focused to this uh, few verses at the end of Genesis 2. As we read about how God designs and destines Adam in this Edenic paradise before the eastward sinful falling away goes into full effect. Remember, our goal is... Our goal is to delight in God's design. You may not agree with God's design. Odds are you won't and you don't always because we're sinners. We're falling from where God wants us to be. And we naturally resist God's design. And we think it's not best for us. 
even though we've settled for something much worse. Not my primary aim. Now, my primary aim is to declare what God's ideal is for biblical manhood, which is, I think, laid out in this text. But I believe 80% of what we've got to talk about is universal for all human beings. So don't worry if you feel like you'll be left out. You won't. You might wish you would be, but you won't. Uh, But even the things that may not necessarily be for you, let me tell you why it should matter for you, especially ladies. If you have a husband or if you want a husband or you plan on having a husband, this is important for you to understand. And if you have sons and grandsons, it definitely matters to you because you're raising the next generation of men. You play a role in affirming them, supporting them, challenging them. And as a church, we want to hear the holistic story of God's image and we want to see it restored in full. So we want to listen to what God has to say. Now, three things that we're going to pick apart from this text regarding God's design for Adam and for men. He's going to lay down three trends. The word trend speaks of a drift of society. Well, this was what God intended to be the trend for men. Next time you're on social media and you see something trending, remember God's word pushes better trends for us to follow. So three trends of the image of God is this idea that we are to prepare, preserve, and pursue. Prepare, preserve, and pursue. Verse 15 is where we get two of these. Then the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it, to work and keep it, to prepare and preserve it is what we use just for alliterations purposes. But prepare, preserve, tend and keep, work and keep. Listen to what God is telling Adam. Core to your purpose, your design and your destiny is a calling every single day to take what you've been given and prepare something to present to God. That is the core goal of our everyday lives, man, woman, whatever. We are called to take what we've been given, prepare something from it and with it and present that to God. The word work is pretty flexible in Hebrew. You see it translated as serve and you also see it as worship. So core to who you are as a person, but specifically men in the image of God, our desire should be to honor God with our lives, to use our gifts, our talents, and our resources to serve him and glorify him. And we've covered that before. Pretty, pretty easy to get, isn't it? Now to unpack this even more, we've got to quickly touch on the next one because they're presented as a package deal. Tend and keep, work and keep. We've decided to call it prepare and preserve. The word keep or tend or preserve means to take care of. It it reminds us that we are serving and reminds us why we are serving, for what purpose we are serving. But I want to make a little bit of a a distinction here, and this might be the most countercultural thing I'll say the whole sermon, and that's saying something. It does not say work and take. It says work and keep. It's been preserved Now, why is that important? The big point of contention in our world today with how our world operates, with how our eyes are trained to perceive the world or at least how they perceive things through their fallen lens. We see a world wherein we can work and we can take for ourselves. You know where you get that from? Your ancestor, Adam. The image of Adam sees a world to own. We like owning things, don't we? It sounds like it's the thing we should be focused on because it's what our nature says we should be doing. Our nature says that's what makes sense. The image of Adam sees a world to own, but if you get anything, I hope you get this. The image of God sees a world on loan. 
from the words we use, the stuff we hold, the job we have, everything is on temporary loan. God has given us incredible tools, incredible opportunities, but I think so many of us miss the purpose and we fail to understand this vital truth. The main reason we stumble is that in our world, we see work as a ladder for self-promotion. Why else would you work, right? I mean, makes sense to me. But what was its original purpose? And we wanna get back to God's image, don't we? It's not a ladder for self-promotion, but a platform for God promotion, God exaltation, God glorification. This is exactly where Adam goes wrong because what does he do in Genesis 3? He takes of the tree because he wants to usurp God. Promote himself. For this reason, so many of us miss the purpose of work. We see it as about ourselves, not about God. Therefore, we miss the blessing available every day and even in the most mundane, menial task. Now, I want to say this is somebody that, not, not to somebody that has their dream job, but somebody that thinks... They don't know if they can make it another day where they're working. Because our world today makes it seem that if you don't have the dream job and haven't got the right degree and can't walk through whatever door you want to walk through, then somehow you're set back a little bit. God can place you and has placed you and has a purpose for you in any role whatsoever that he deems fit for you and best for you and your families. And that job... Again, if it's a ladder for self-promotion, I understand why you're wanting to get away from it. But if it's a platform for self, for God promotion, all of a sudden the burden becomes a little bit lighter and the opportunity for blessings becomes a little bit more possible, right? Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, and I'll address the concerns. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned him to, into which God has called him. So brothers, in whatever condition each has each was called, or wherever you are right now, there let him remain with God. Now, the purpose of this verse is not to throttle your ambition. If God opens a door, walk through it. But don't ruin your joy and spoil your joy of every single day of serving God just because a door hasn't opened for you by man's power. The idea here is that you can find contentment and concentration and you might have maximum determination. Help discern where God has placed you and why he's placed you there. And I think this is important because a lot of us, we wish we were a little farther ahead than we are. And we can, get, we can blame a lot of things, we can point a lot of fingers, and we can get, a lot of, we can get really down on ourselves, can't we? But what if we begin looking at work and at our lives through this lens? Colossians 3 says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus after all. Also men, our nature, our nature is not to tend. Our nature is to grab and to control. Our nature is to see money to make and we become aggravated when things aren't like they could be or should be, which is why we never see the opportunity to go to work as a blessing, we see it as a burden. What happens in the process, men, is that we become awful people. Our characters suffer because we feel as if we didn't get to, we didn't get to take as much as we wanted to or as if somebody got in our way or heck, somebody who was handed something that we worked our tails off for and we got nothing and they got something they don't deserve. You ever been there? Listen to me. 
This says tend, not take, as in our purpose every day as we prepare something for the glory of God is to all the while help preserve and protect this fragile world from falling apart. But the reason why that isn't so easy is our nature is to take, not tend. We choose might over meekness. We choose me over them most of the time. Isn't it right, ma'am? The reason why the world unravels a little more every day is because there are roughly three to four billion of us that are all trying to ch take a chunk out of it at the same time. We choose might over meekness, taking over tending, and everybody suffers, including our families. What if godly men and women would step up and do their part to work and keep their little bit of real estate every day? What an impact that might would make. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This generation thought might made right. And Jesus said, if everybody's full of might, then there won't be a world left. Meek, meekness. We think the way to make something happen and make something for ourselves is to bulldoze whatever is in our way. But Jesus says there won't be anything left if you do that. Meekness isn't what most men aspire for, but it's what every man desperately needs. The Apostle Paul wrote to church leaders in Ephesus, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain, eager to keep unity. Again, a lot of perspective this could bring to our daily lives and our situations that we might not be the most happy with. But doesn't mean that we can't serve the Lord there. And it means that we can have a different attitude that might make a big difference. So how can we go about this? I want to give you three things to remember. Literally remember, respect, and recover the image of God. Remember what God says about you and them. And you know who I'm talking about. Them. They're in God's image too. That might change how you work around them and how you treat them. It might not change how they treat you. But it'll change how you treat them and it'll change the way you begin to see your opportunity every day. Respect yourself and them with every decision, word, and action and recover by following God and assisting others in finding him. Men, we spend eight to 12 hours a day working, maybe more. And if you go home with a take attitude every day, I don't care how much money you bring home, nobody will like you. From your wife to your kids to your coworkers, that's not a way of a godly man. Now, I know what we say, well, you know what, I, I'm, I'm sorry, this world requires that I take and I grab and I get after. But you look at verse 9 and 11, if you just make a note of this. Verse 9 says that God put food in the garden. And verse 11 says that God put gold in the garden. So what does that remind me and you? That God provides what we need. God provided Adam his salary before he ever worked a day. And he still blew it. doesn't mean that we don't see work as a means to provide, but it means that we see it more as a purpose which we can honor God and help preserve what is his. We can't forget that, church. If we do, everybody suffers. So I want to ask you, what are you preparing for God as an, extension of, as an extension for your families and those around you every day? How are you leveraging your job for your testimony? Or do you turn your faith off at work? If it turns off at work, I bet it doesn't turn back on so easy, does it? 
What if you started looking at your work as a platform to serve God, not a ladder to serve yourself? We wouldn't try to take from a tree that has been made off limits, would we? How are you preserving and more so repairing this world with your efforts each day? Or are you doing the opposite? Costing and taking. But there's another one that we'll look at for just a minute. Pursue. Story goes that God says in Genesis 2 verse 18 that it's not good that man should be alone. God says, I will make him a helper a partner, someone that will complete him, a helper comparable to him, equal to him. Make sure you know that. Out of the ground, God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the air. He brought them to Adam, and we know the story. Adam gives them names, but none of them were his equal. None of them were his comparable, as it says. So the Lord God put Adam to sleep, verse 21, and he caused him to fall to a deep sleep, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its part. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from Adam... He made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out. That's the Hebrew, literally taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined or cling or pursue his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now, let me, let me make this very clear. Men, same goes for women. Your value and your worth is not tied to who you marry or if you marry. This isn't what this is saying. You are valuable to God, whether you're singled, married, divorced, widowed. God values you just the same. You may even have a gift of singleness, which is if you dedicate your life to the kingdom of God, God bless you for it. But in reality, most men, most people, most men, though, desire relationship. Sin and our fallen image distort this desire into being about appearance and pleasure and selfish things. But the image of God, design and desire is better than that. It's that you would pursue a godly wife for the glory of God. Your wife, mind you, is not your property or an object. She is, as Genesis tells us, our mate. This means that God makes you and your wife one. You have a more complete image of God than you did apart. Now, there is a crisis in our world when it comes to godly men, men who treat women with respect, who are willing to die for their wives like Jesus was willing to die for his church who are willing to build up their wife rather than building up their own life. The Bible calls us to this place of sacrifice, purpose, and pursuit. Clinging to our wives like Christ clung to his bride, to you and me. Listen, men, whether you're 10 or 90, there's a lot in our world today that can distract and preoccupy us. There's enough sin in our world that will make you think you don't want this, but and there's a lot of married people this applies to more than just single people. To be honest, because a lot of us have given up on protecting and repairing our marriages out of a desire to honor God and be complete. Now, we'll make this more mutual next week, don't worry. But men, God held Adam accountable for what happens in the next chapter. You know why? Because Adam was the leader. Now, I know we talk a lot about that, and this might make you push back a little bit because we don't. this rhetoric gets a little bit controversial in today's world, but the Bible says that the man, the husband, is the leader of the family. But let me make this very clear. The leadership isn't our right. It's an obligation which we must bear soberly and sacredly. Any man that says I'm the leader with arrogance is reckless and missing the point. This is a humble obligation that God has placed over us 
to represent Christ, who is the leader of the church. God calls men to be the head of the family, which we focus on the respect it may or may not deserve, but we ought to focus on the grace we need from God to lead and the weight on our shoulders to do so soberly and sacredly. Men, the Bible says we've been called to be leaders in the church and in our families, but remember this, we may be a leader, but we're not the leader. We may be a leader, we're not the leader. So we must pursue God with our whole hearts and cling to our families with our whole hearts because everything is on the line. We'll look at the gospel's presentation through our lives next week. It's on the line. So how do we line up with the image of God? We need to seek God's face to get back to this place that so many of us have walked away from. I mean, we can't allow Satan to make our hearts cold lest we become bitter and hateful. We can't allow him to make our hearts weary lest we take refuge in a world that only takes more and empties more. Every day we have a purpose to prepare something for God's glory, to preserve this world from falling apart, to pursue him and those around us in our lives. And ladies, men can't do it alone. To lead the next generation to getting back to the place in the image of God, it's going to take a group effort, a family effort, a church-wide effort. If we're to help reverse our eastward drift to get back to Eden, to get back to the image of God. I know the weight is a little bit shifted on the men today specifically, but it's on all of our shoulders, isn't it? Every single one of us has a purpose every single day and an opportunity every single day. And men, you know what you've been called to do. Prepare something for God. Preserve what we are tempted to destroy. And look at your families, your wife, your kids, and all those around you. Pursue them, cling to them with your whole heart. You have an obligation to lead them in a godly way for the hope and the sake of our world. For the next generation, it depends on this. If we, in the image of Christ, would reverse this eastward drift and get back to where God intended us to be. Are you willing today to ask God for help? Not just men, women, everybody. Are you willing to say, God, I need your help because I went east. I gripe and I complain and I'm angry and I'm all about taking and trying to, and and my life is miserable because of it. And people suffer because of it. We're going to have a word of prayer, and we're going to have an invitation as we sing the song Sanctuary. God is our sanctuary. You can come to him. You can, the, the mountain has been split wide open. You can get back to God. You can walk to him and ask him for help. He will not leave you nor forsake you. He's here to help you today. Father, thank you for this sobering, sacred reminder of what it means to be made in your image. Lord, as we talk just a little bit about what it means to be in your image as a man I pray you might would remind us all today, Lord, as we've got wives and family and we've got people that we are called to lead and, and, and guide. God, I pray you might would show us all where we can begin to walk back towards you, how we can get back to you through Christ, through his plan, through this pathway that's been laid out to us today. God, bless every family, bless every single, every married, every divorced, every widowed person in this room because every one of us have a role to play in our world for the honor and glory of the kingdom of God, for the spread of the gospel. Would you use this invitation to bring somebody back to you, God, that has drifted away?
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.